This is ESG Decoded, the podcast powered by Global Affairs Associates to provide relevant, actionable updates related to business innovation and sustainability. Join Caitlin Allen and Amanda Shea of Global Affairs Associates for thoughtful, nuanced conversations with industry leaders that explore the complexities, the risks, and the opportunities connected to all things ESG. I'm Yvonne Harris, a consultant and co-host, and I will be collaborating with Caitlin and Amanda for the discussions that we will present on this podcast. Put simply, ESG is everything that is not on your balance sheet. This leaves room for misunderstanding, oversimplification, and the tendency towards one-size-fits-all perspectives. None of that will happen on this podcast. Enjoy this episode. Welcome back to ESG Decoded. I'm your host, Caitlin Allen, and I'm here today with Dr. Matthew Berg. Matthew Berg has nearly 20 years of experience in a variety of water, agriculture, and climate issues across government, corporate, and academic sectors. He's currently the CEO and Principal Scientist at Semfero Consultants. Selected through a U.S. Department of Agriculture program to develop the next generation of science leaders, Dr. Berg completed his doctoral studies at one of the world's top agricultural schools where he received Texas A&M University's top honors for research and teaching. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, glad to be here. And we're gonna start today with a fun question. We've reversed that on the pod, so love to hear from our listeners if you're enjoying this. Um, But the fun question for you today is, what is the last thing that you ate that you didn't have to pay for? So I love spending time outside and things live outside. That's not just critters and bugs, but that also means plants. And if you know what to look for, you can find the stuff that you can eat where you live. So for me, being in Houston, like you are, there's a long growing season. That means that there's a lot of stuff that comes up different times of year, blackberries in the spring, mulberries a little bit later on. But right about this time of year, we actually have a native passion fruit variety. If you know what to look for, it's got the craziest flowers. And if you pop them open, super tasty. But most people have no idea. I didn't know that. We have a passion fruit native to Texas. If you look it up, the the species is called purple passion flower. It's got the, it looks like an alien flower, but it closes up, makes this almost like the size of your fist fruit. And it starts to go from green to yellow. That's when you pop them open and they are tasty. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Where do you find them? Kind of Katy Prairie area or is it? Um, more... you, you can, but they usually live kind of on the edge of where trees kind of meet open areas. They're, they're okay. a little a climbing vine and they pretty much climb over stuff to get towards the sun. So shrubs, trees that kind of face grassy areas, you'll probably find them growing all over. Very cool. I'm going to be looking that up. Thank you. Um, definitely not what I expected for an answer. <laughs> Like when I go forage in the forest. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. I think my personal record That's is maybe cool. a couple dozen different kinds of things at one time. So lots of wow, stuff. Wow. Amazing. I love that. Okay. Well, the reason we are having you on today is actually to discuss the intersection of a couple of topics. So we do a lot of work on climate, of course, in Houston with the energy industry. And so we talk a lot about energy and climate, but water is sometimes neglected in those conversations. And I have heard you, or you have educated me on the energy water climate nexus in the past. And I feel like that's just a really important concept that we should start with. 
So could you just start by telling us what is the Energy Water Climate Nexus and why does this matter? Well, first off, I'll explain what the word nexus is. That's a weird one to a lot of people. And it sounds familiar because it is a part of the word connection. It, really, they are linked. So if you go way back to the, the root original language of the word, it, it means that they're linked. They're intertwined. They're tied together. So not just the kind of overlap, but they are intrinsically locked to one another. So you hear these things that are kind of paired up almost like gears that you can't turn one without the other. And a lot of times it's things like energy and water or food and water or energy and climate, energy, water, and climate. So we're, we're talking about energy, water, and climate today, but then I also tie in food with that as well. So kind of a foursome, and I'll explain why it really makes sense to pull all those together. But the idea is looking at changes in one or increased demands in one or lower availability in one, especially around the water or the energy side is going to twist all of those gears, but in sometimes unpredictable ways and sometimes very difficult ways to deal with. So the nexus just means that they're interconnected in such a way that the availability or lack of availability of one affects all the others, sort of twisting the gears, like you say, in a, in a singular machine or, or system. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's okay. not just the too little. Sometimes it's the too much or sometimes the not clean enough type of consideration. So there's, mm-hmm. there's multiple levers and multiple ways to turn each of those levers around multiple gears. Mm-hmm. So why does this concept matter for, for people like everyday people, I guess? That's an awesome question. When you woke up this morning, what was the first thing that you did? Um, brush my teeth. Water. There's water right there. Yeah. <laughs> There's water, There's water right there. And even before yeah. doing that, you turn on the lights, which I imagine still um, in most of the United States and especially beyond, to do that, it took water to create the electricity that you could turn on your lights. Because a good chunk of the water use in this country, about 40%, is what's called thermoelectric power. And that's anything that essentially takes water to turn a jet engine really fast, but you got to heat it up to make steam to turn it really fast. And then that essentially makes our electricity. So about 40% of the water that we use in this country comes from water dependent sources. So there you go. And that's, that's just the first couple of seconds. <laughs> wow. and then you, had, you had to make choices about what you drank. I'm not sure if you're a coffee person, a tea person, or, or neither. And then your breakfast food, there's water in that. How you choose to move around will dictate what kind of fuel sources go into your vehicle or your own legs. Everything has water baked into it. There's kind of this idea of a water footprint, the, the water that directly goes into creating the things that we use, or sometimes we input water virtually sometimes it's considered like if if you are going to the grocery store you see all oh, these blackberries are awesome but it's not really blackberry season you turn them over and you find out that maybe they're from chile you pop them open they taste great but it's not the time they should be growing because their season's the opposite so we can pretty much have things available year-round that means that we're importing the water from them. So we're taking away from them. So you can see if things start to get really complicated, really fast, not just in one place, but borrowing from different connections around the globe, food, energy, and beyond. No, I love that example of thinking just everyone can relate to that. What do you do when you wake up? And I thought of another one, which is turn off my alarm, 
well, what's my alarm is my phone, right? My phone yeah. is connected to the internet, <laughs> which, and then, and also plugged into the wall, right? To charge. So yeah, yeah very, well, very that, That's a super big one that we can even jump a little bit deeper in that your phone right now, you might hear about, you know, the price of new cars is, is dramatically increased as has used cars because everybody sold off their used cars last year, but there's been a backup of new cars because we don't have enough chips because in Taiwan, one of the major chip producing areas has been through a crazy drought where they just got a little bit of rain, but that, that kind of constrained their ability to make new chips that go into cars, that go into phones, that go into so many other things. And then it just goes on and on talking about internet data centers take dramatic amounts of energy, which in and of themselves, if they're not tied to a solar or wind installation, they might be pulling indirectly on water through their energy supply. And then even when they do run on electricity, they get really hot servers and they have to cool those down with water. So I, I've heard it said that we've not even started talking about the climate piece, but you can see water is intrinsically connected to everything that we do in everyday life. Fred said, and I really like it, that if climate change is a shark, water is its teeth. And I think that's powerful because they're not just the thing that you're most concerned about, but I also happen to know a thing about shark biology. If they lose a tooth, there's another one right behind it that will rotate into place to take its place. <laughs> so there's always the next thing popping up that can get you. Great analogy. <laughs> Great analogy. You know, I think so many people don't have a basic, say, energy education, right? And that's one of the things that I think is unfortunate about so many policy discussions and political discussions is this, this lack of understanding of how truly dependent our modern lifestyles are on energy, on water, you know, on, on these things that everyone, you know, we want to snap our fingers and change overnight, but that consumption and personal footprint piece is so, so important. And, and just simply the awareness piece, just knowing what, where your electricity comes from when you turn the lights on, how important that is. And, and then making that connection back to water as well. I think, you know, from, from a personal standpoint, I can relate to that, right? Brush my teeth, turn off my alarm, turn the lights on, make some coffee. But, you know, since we are an ESG podcast, right, we're trying to educate folks about which ESG issues matter to different companies, industries, financial institutions. What's the connection here between this energy, water, climate, food nexus, and why does it matter to companies and financial institutions? The, the easiest one first is that when you think of water, you think of water you can see. And that's water in streams and lakes and the ocean. So again, too little, too much, make sure it's, it's clean enough. Water is intrinsically tied to the ecosystems that we see and value and know. And sometimes if we're homeowners, either pay a premium to be near or in the unlucky areas, a premium to not be near because they sometimes flood a lot. But that's a risk calculation that everyone does. So many species of the water can only live in water. And if there's no water, then they can't live anywhere else. Or if the water um, becomes too loaded with things that aren't water or harmful to life, um, again, they, they can't live. So these things don't really have an alternative. So the ecosystem, the environment piece 
is pretty easy to recognize. And it's not just those too much, too little, too dirty, but then there's also the kind of the temperature tolerance. One of the things that gets a lot of dollars going in a lot of parts of the country is people paying a premium to go trout fishing or salmon fishing. Well, guess what? That's not usually in Texas. It's in those northern parts of the country or in the mountains. And if things get too hot, then fish die. If you look at what happened up in the Northwest and is currently happening, almost all all the salmon and a lot of rivers are dying because it's too hot. So there's all these different quality pieces. If you've got a footprint in any, what's called a watershed, that's from top to bottom, kind of like a bathtub, anything that falls in that area, it's all gonna drain to one common drain spot. So watershed is an important word to know. You really need to be a part of meaningful discussions because anything that you do that involves what's called consumptive water use, not just taking water, but actually taking it and not putting it back. There are some activities that do put water back through runoff water and agriculture, or maybe use it to cool things down and then you send it back out. So one of the things that, that folks that have a footprint in any area need to know is what is the water situation right there? Be a part of those conversations so they can be a part of maintaining or even restoring environmental quality with an eye towards not degrading things in the future. So that's, that's kind of the environmental piece. If you roll over to the social piece, because there's not a substitute for water, that is one of the first things you'll learn in negotiations in this space is there's not a substitute. They're not, water is not fungible. So you've got to depend on the waters you have. And if you're consuming water, taking it away, that means that there's less available for everyone else. Economies, towns, communities, individuals, families live in areas and depend on water sources. So if an industry uh, corporation is, is in a spot and there's competition there, that obviously it sets up a, a pretty tricky dynamic sometimes. Um, so meaningfully being involved in conversations, building real incorporation of stakeholder discussions inside organizational planning structures, and then moving those forward. I, I think people have gotten really good at understanding what is addressing and what is meaningful involvement in incorporation of lo local concerns. So that's, that's kind of a rough take at the, at the social piece. And then even governance can kind of fit into it as well, because one of the things that's become really tricky in the water space, especially over long time scale, even, even back in the last century, is water is often taken from the have-nots and given to the haves. And a lot of times that means those with, with more resources, money-wise or political power. So making sure today you have diversity in the decision-making bodies of organizations of local buy-in, making sure that those voices are a part, again, of making the decisions, not just in the social considerations of local communities, but having them inside the fence, <laughs> inside the boardroom. And maybe that's in all the places that you have a footprint, but making sure all those diverse perspectives are kind of folded together. Because yeah. you might have one vision for water, but everybody else has their own vision. And you got to make sure that those don't overlap and run into each other too, too much. And that's sort of like two aspects of making natural resource distribution more equitable. One being stakeholder engagement, right? Making sure that as any, as a company, you understand the needs and concerns of the local stakeholders where you operate, but then this other level, which is now, you know, with NASDAQ just passing this mandate for NASDAQ companies, making sure that there is 
a, at least a very basic level of board diversity, which, you know, it's not very high, right? But it's better than nothing to make sure that, you know, we're not just playing, paying lip service through stakeholder engagement activities, but truly making sure that at the decision-making levels, there's an appreciation of, you say, outside the box or outside the the old boardroom thinking when it comes to these decisions. So that's, it's really interesting. I ha- I hadn't personally made that connection. So it's, a, it's an important one to make from this energy water to diversity and inclusion at, at the top levels of the company and also to stakeholder engagement. Absolutely. So, it's, thanks. it's very complex. And for, <laughs> for a person who's very much addicted to learning like myself, it's kind of the master key, not just to any industrial sector, to ESG itself, and honestly, to human society. Um, everything is built on dependable, reliable water supplies. And when things start to kind of tweak that a little bit, stuff gets really tough in a hurry. I, I, there's actually some pretty compelling stats out there right now about a quarter of the population lives in very high water stress areas. In just in like four or five years, that might be about half the world population lives in extremely water stressed areas. So that was a global statistic that currently is 20. Wow. Wow. That's huge. And yet we keep building over deserts and, (laughs) you know, just continuing to, to develop areas that don't have access to water, which is amazing when you really stop to think about it, you know? So that kind of is almost bridges to a public policy issue, right? So thinking about permitting, local permit, we know that in, especially in Houston, which of course comes up a lot on this podcast because that's where we are, but it's just such a great example of this, right? As we know that over paving over the prairie has been very bad for Houston and paving all around the city has been bad for Houston. And yet and you're closer to this than I am. So, but it seems to me that I see announcements for new developments pretty much all the time. Any thoughts on that? I mean, I think this, this local policy context is so important. And then of course there's different levels of, of policymaking, right? Mm-hmm. What, what do you think? Are, are we still paving the prairie over? <laughs> sure, very much sure looks like it. Um, and, and- for those folks that, that aren't familiar with the Houston area, uh, there's there's a large swath of area west of the, the urban core that is still prairie, and pretty much everything from the middle of that core area, northwest, west, southwest, and even south, even southeast, was uh, not forest, not buildings, but prairie of different varieties. Um, and that's not the case as much anymore. And, and like we talked about, it's not just having enough water. There's also considerations of having too much. And right now we have ourselves in this particular region, kind of an ongoing conversation of how we deal with it, the too much phase of that. And one of the, one of the strategies that's kind of emerging is getting rid of water faster, um, which, okay, that makes sense. I guess it, you know, keeps water out of buildings and infrastructure. But then when you start to kind of flip to the other phase of, well, now we need to think about making sure we have enough water. When you get rid of water faster, that means that you don't have it when you don't have enough. And that's actually kind of the pinch point for most industries is not how do you get water when you have too much, it's how do you get water when there's not enough. Um, So one of the things that can really help do the heavy lifting is if you look at places like prairies or forests or conserved natural areas, 
because there's not pavement on top, water slowly percolates in, gets into shallow groundwater and potentially even aquifer. And then that water is then available to be slowly released, maybe when you do need it, when things really do get dry. So that can be a long-term resource. In, in Texas, about 30% of the flow in any river, in rivers overall, it's very context specific, but about 30% of the flow in rivers is from groundwater. So to me, it makes sense that you want to give chance to at least have some of that water get into the ground. So when things do dry out, it's still there for you. Looking forward right now, again, Houston's kind of in this phase where we're mostly concerned about flooding, it will flip. And the state climatologist, along with a bunch of others, has done some compelling research that came out last year that kind of the dividing line, if you imagine a line in Texas from where you're more concerned about drought to where you're more concerned about flooding, historically, it's about been I-35. Everything west there, we, we generally consider being dry. Everything east of there, you generally consider being too wet or wetter things that you worry about. That dividing line is going to consider, continue to march east. I'm not really talking about that as the climate piece, but for every one degree Celsius warming, the air can hold about 7% more moisture. So when it does rain, potentially it can rain more. But what it also does is it supercharges evaporation from the surface. So essentially our whole water cycle is speeding up and it's drying out. So all that to say, even in Houston, while we're current, currently more concerned about, or concerned about having too much water, kind of more thinking about flooding, we always need to have an eye towards the, well, what happens when, when, not if, but when we don't have enough and making sure we've got all the tools in the toolbox to be ready for that because it will come and it did come only 10 years ago with a really bad drought here and future ones will be worse. Wow, that's uplifting. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. But actually I had, I had to, I didn't want to cut you off because this is so interesting. I did not know that connection uh, the, about the quicker evaporation, but I have to stop you. Did you say we have a state climatologist? We do. He is Dr. Don Nielsen-Gammon up at Texas A&M University. He is governor appointed and has continued to do some fantastic research, both on Current events, different storms, but also projecting into the future. Harris County uses that in some of the flood projections, but also the statewide flood planning process is incorporating some of those future projections as well. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah. So one of the reasons that I know him is we actually presented alongside each other on a couple of occasions, and he's actually cited my research and some of his statewide reports, so, so I know him pretty well. That's very cool. No, that's really cool. So let's let's circle this back around, right? I mean, to me, this is, when I hear this discussion and I'm thinking with my consulting hat on, I'm thinking about risk. Mm. And I'm thinking about risks, not just to individual businesses, but more broadly to the to markets, particularly, I mean, it's precisely what's been happening with COVID, right? We have a, a disruption in many, many supply chains, disruption to the chip market, you know, microchip market and that sort of thing. But for, from this specific standpoint, so let's just call it water at the moment, but what do you see as the, the biggest risk for businesses? And, and then what are, what are some of the policy gaps that, that you might pr- propose solutions for? So I think one of, I'll even back up a little bit farther. I think one of the biggest risks to localities, be it municipal governments, to counties, is extreme variability 
And one good picture of that is a few years ago, one of the biggest dams in California suffered severe damage and people were terrified, rightly so, that it might burst and flood everything downstream. Today, if you pull up an image of that reservoir, it is nearly bone dry and they had to stop power on that lake for essentially the first time ever because there's not enough water to push through it. We have to be prepared for both of those. That is extremely hard to do. Now, a lot of that falls on the shoulders of government. If you're a company, generally right now, if you look at water considerations, it is on the make sure we're having enough side of things. That's not always going to be the case, but that's what drives most of the decision right now because a lot of the commodities are, are in agriculture or in supply chains that require water for manufacturing processes. So making sure we have enough but not just amounts, the timing. Is it evenly distributed through the year or does it all come in a couple months, like parts of the desert monsoon where that is the case? So reliability is really getting tough. Making sure or trying to reduce your exposure on the outset when you're deciding where to put new operations is becoming increasingly important, but also being a good neighbor to those communities where, where you're moving in because if they're already stressed out and they see a big water user coming in, that's going to make some hard conversations even more difficult. So making sure, again, almost all corporations are wrestling with water from the making sure we have enough side of things. The World Economic Forum consistently cites water at the top of two or three of their global risk issues. And companies considerably, consistently rate it as one of their top areas of concern. Flooding can't get them, water quality can't get them. But right now, the thing that's getting most people's attention is the the water supply dependability. So there seems to be a a link there. I mean, I'm thinking about TCFD. We do a lot of task force on climate-related financial disclosure or TCFD work, which is helping companies to, say, understand and articulate what those either physical and or transition risks are um, related to climate change. And certainly we have clients that water is there, you know, on the list of, you know, access to water, water scarcity, but it sounds like that's probably should be brought up in most conversations, if not all, depending on, of course, where, where they operate, it it could be different, but maybe something to even think about with climate scenario analysis as well, including water scenarios. Absolutely. Even just reading through different analyses out there. Companies have gotten used to, well, are becoming more used to using a carbon lens to view climate conversations. But water shouldn't be far behind. And if you can think of an industry sector, a corporation that is immune from water concerns, let me know because I haven't thought of it yet. (laughs) Literally everything is going to be overlapping with water at some point. So they've got at least from their own risk management perspective, be watching it and probably for a lot of other reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think this has been a really helpful conversation. I have certainly learned a lot from you as I always do. I feel like every time I talk to you, I learn something I didn't know, which is, uh, you know, the best kind of friendship, uh, colleagueship to have. <laughs> so we appreciate you a lot as a colleague, but let's just kind of get a little high level, sort of high level, but I'm gonna ask you the magic wand question. If you had a magic wand that only applied to the energy, water, climate, food nexus, what would you have it do? So this is going to be one answer that applies to a couple different areas. And that would be that we could see. We could see water vapor. 
we could see carbon dioxide and we could see methane because that would help us realize how fast things are evaporating, not just when we see rainfall, but we see water going in the opposite direction. We see things like different carbon molecules that influence climate and have an impact on the water cycle. So I think seeing all those things that we currently can't see and then therefore don't really have to think too hard about, or we choose not to, that would really change the way that we operate and probably make a lot more things possible. That is such a profound answer. Thank you, that we could see. I love that. I love that so much. It makes me think of the methane satellite monitoring technologies mm -hmm. that are out there now. Bluefield is one of the companies. There's a few that are actually, you know, monitoring methane from, from, from space. So that's one of the things that, I mean, frankly, it's, it's what you're saying. Once people could see it and once, you know, the companies could even see it, they're like, wow, <laughs> you know? So I think that's doing a lot to spur action, certainly at, it, within the oil and gas industry is that, that satellite methane work to help us see those actual emissions, but interesting, really big picture stuff, right? What if we could see water vapor? What if we could see the carbon dioxide? And that, that would make life simultaneously, I think, beautiful and terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, true. There's a lot of terrifying things. Let's, let me ask you that then. So I know there, there's just so much doomsday stuff out there. I'm an eternal optimist um, and pragmatist personally. I can't stand to only think of terrifying things, but you know, you're really more deeply immersed in the science of all of this than I am. How do you feel? I mean, do you, you have a daughter, you have a young daughter. What kind of world do you think she'll be in, in when she's our age, say? I think that variability in the times of plenty and times of not is going to be kind of amplified. So again, having too much water, having too little, kind of kind of stretch that out a little bit. And I think a lot of the things that we've taken for granted, driving to or flying to Glacier National Park, you know, that's kind of a well-known one. Those glaciers aren't going to be there probably for her when she's my age. Parts of the Gulf Coast of the United States and many other places are going to have to live with water ankle deep or shin deep in the not too distant decades and beyond. And one of the things that was compelling about the recent uh, IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change report, is that things are going to continue. We, we should and kind of stop right now, and we, we can slow things. Impacts are going to continue. It's just a question of how much we're going to keep our thumb on the scale. So things will evolve. But what gives me hope is those that are finding their voices in this time, who are in middle school, high school, college, They've got loads of energy. They've seen what their parents have had and they sure want something like that. They don't want to add to the stresses that they've had to live through and they know how to get things done. So I'm excited about the people that will dream big things and I think commit to seeing big things happen. Perfect way to end. Thank you so much for being here today, Matthew. We value your friendship and your being a colleague happy that we have someone like you in our state and city helping to advise the policymakers because, you know, as a Houstonian and that have a lot of water, <laughs> experienced many, many floods here, it's really great to know that you're on it. Dr. Berg is on it. 
(laughs) (laughs) It's a lot to be on, but I sure do try. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thanks again for joining us for ESG Decoded. You can find links to Dr. Berg's company and the scientist we mentioned, the state climatologist, will include links to that in the information. Thank you. Thank you for listening to ESG Decoded. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you consume yours and follow ESG Decoded and Global Affairs Associates across social media platforms. Until our next episode, take what you learned today to drive long-term value for your organization by doing good for people and for the planet. Thank you.